take place about five centuries after that, if my math is right. And in some ways, things appear to be very much the same. God's people are living under foreign rules. The values and the culture of the Roman Empire are antithetical to what God requires of his covenant people. But instead of sending people like Ezra and Nehemiah to lead and guide the people of God in managing and navigating through this alien culture, the obvious difference here is that God himself is coming on the scene in the person of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at the opening verses of Luke, the prologue. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed to good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, thank you. You may sit down. Okay, so before zeroing in on the Gospel of Luke, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the time and the circumstances revolving around the writing of all four Gospels. Luke says in verse 1 that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. It's not immediately clear who or how many Luke had in mind. There were some narratives circulating, but as you know, only four of them made into the script, made them into the script, into the canon of Scripture: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's good reason to believe that the order in which the four Gospels appear in our New Testament is arranged chronologically in terms of when they were written, though it's not all that certain whether Matthew or Mark was written first. Um, Luke mentions in verse 2 those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and certainly Matthew was an eyewitness. He was the tax collector who became a disciple of Jesus and one of the twelve apostles. Matthew himself recounts his calling and conversion in chapter 9 of his gospel, and Mark tells the same story in chapter 2 of his gospel, and Luke tells the same story in chapter 5 of his gospel. It's hard to state when Matthew was written, but it was likely in the late 50s or early 60s. That's the O-50s, O-60s. The only thing we have to go on is there an assertion by one of the church fathers, Arrhenius, who said that Matthew was written while Peter and Paul were still alive, so that would put it in that time frame. Now, Mark was not an apostle, though tradition holds it that the unidentified person near the end of Mark who is said to have 
running away when Jesus was arrested. Tradition holds it that that was Mark himself. So Mark could have been an eyewitness. In any event, Mark was closely associated with the Apostle Peter. He, in effect, was Peter's scribe. Um, Mark got his gospel firsthand from Peter. And it was probably written in the late 50s. Now, before we delve into Luke, just to give everybody equal time, I need to mention something about John's gospel. Okay. Um, that was probably written much later, sometime after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and obviously before John's death, uh, which was around A.D. 100. We know this because John's is the only gospel that refers to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias. And it wasn't until the latter part of the first century that people started calling it the Sea of Tiberias. And also in John 21, 19, he makes a reference to Peter's martyrdom, which occurred sometime between 64 and 66 AD. So using a little logic, you say, well, it must have been written much later. But the first three were written relatively early. Let's talk about Luke's gospel and today's passage. Okay, we can ask some questions. Who was Luke? When did he write his gospel? How did he write it? What's different about his gospel? Why did he write it? If you're taking notes, these are the questions we're going to attempt to answer in the sermon. Who, when, how, what, and why? So who? So if you want to ask the question, who was Luke? I'm afraid you're not going to find the answer in Luke's gospel. Uh, just like all the other gospel writers, Luke is, Luke is written anonymously. He had no need or desire to call attention to himself. To figure out who wrote it, we need to do some investigative work and look at other parts of the New Testament. First and foremost, we can look at today's passage, the book's prologue, and compare it to the opening prologue of the book of Acts. Let's jump there for a second. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the, that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the person who wrote Acts is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's addressed to the same person, Theophilus, more on him later. And it refers to and summarizes the previous book, which is very obviously the Gospel of Luke. The writing style of both books including some very polished Greek, is markedly similar. Whoever the author was, he was very highly educated. Unfortunately, the author of Acts doesn't identify himself either. Again, he doesn't want to call attention to himself because the book is not about him. However, in Acts, he is kind enough to drop us a few hints. In the latter half of Acts, starting in chapter 16, verse 10, there's a sudden change in pronouns. The author goes from exclusively using the third person, 
he and him, they and them, and starts to use the first person plural, we and us. So in chapter 16, he talks about a vision Paul had which led him to decide to preach the gospel in Philippi. And probably didn't need to include all this, but we'll go ahead and read it all. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who would come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So apparently the author of Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He was with Paul just before he went to Philippi. It's not clear how long he was with Paul at this point, because before Paul leaves Philippi, the author switches back to third person. I can't say this authoritatively, but it appears that Paul's anonymous traveling companion must have stayed at Philippi for a while, and he therefore missed the mob violence in Thessalonica. Later in chapter 16, the philosophical discussions at Mars Hill in Acts 17, the trips to Corinth and Antioch in Acts 18, and the riots in Ephesus in 19. He missed all the fun. Okay. But in Acts 25, we go back to the first person plural, where it says that Paul and his traveling companions went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, and we stayed there for seven days. Now, the we passages continue into Acts 21, as our author traveled with Paul all the way to Jerusalem, and was with him when he met him, when he met with the elders of the Jerusalem church. And he was also apparently there when Paul was accosted by a mob and arrested at the temple. We don't see we reference again until Acts 27, where it says when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy. The we references continue in Acts 27, and that suggests that our author was on board with Paul on his way to Rome including during the horrific storm that ended in a shipwreck on the island of Malta. And reading on in Acts 28, it seems that Paul went all the or Luke, or the author, we haven't identified him yet, went all the way to Rome with Paul. Okay, so now that's very interesting, but Paul had many traveling companions. How do we know it was Luke? Well, by process of elimination. Paul's first traveling companions was Barnabas. Couldn't have been him, as he and Paul went their separate ways back in Acts 15. Just about every other traveling companion of Paul's is actually mentioned in the book of Acts in the third person, but Luke is not. 
However, Luke is specifically mentioned in three passages in Paul's letters. In Colossians 4.14, Paul is writing to Colossae, and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Colossians was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, referenced in Acts 28, which makes sense because we know from Acts that Luke was with him. It is here that we learn that Luke is a Gentile. After setting, sending greetings from all the Jews who were with him, he goes on to mention Epaphras and Luke, who by implication are not Jews. Of course, it's here that we learn that Luke is a medical doctor and is therefore highly educated which would explain the very highly polished Greek in which the Gospel of Luke is written. He's also mentioned as being with Paul in verse 24 of Philemon, which was written about the same time or on the same occasion that Colossians was written. And finally, in 2 Timothy 4.11, we find Luke with Paul again, this time during his second imprisonment just prior to his being martyred. In this chapter... Paul lists all the people who left him. Some of these people left him for legitimate reasons, others not so much. Then he states, Luke alone is with me. So in addition to being highly educated, a Gentile physician, Luke was obviously a faithful brother and a loyal friend. So by process of elimination, we can be confident that the author of Acts and therefore of the third gospel was indeed Luke. Furthermore, the early church was unanimous in saying, yes, Luke wrote this gospel. As a matter of fact, it was never questioned or doubted that Luke wrote the third gospel until around the 19th century. Who questioned or doubted it? Well, the usual suspects, the same people who doubt everything else about the Bible. So... Okay, so we've answered who. Now, when? We know who wrote the gospel. Okay, when did he write it? That's an important question because logic would tell us that the sooner it was written after the events that took place, the more trustworthy it is. A narrative written maybe a century or two later would allow time for exaggerations and tall tales and myths to develop. When was the Gospel of Luke written? Logic would tell us, well, obviously it had to have been written before the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts ends with Paul's imprisonment, which is more like a house arrest in Rome, and it ends on a somewhat positive note. Acts 28.30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul preached the gospel boldly and without hindrance. Well, that must have been before Nero's persecution, which was around A.D. 65, or it must have been before Paul's martyrdom, which probably happened somewhere around that time, anywhere between 64 and 67. And it must have, been, must have been written certainly before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Otherwise, 
these are big events. These, you know, Nero's persecution, Paul being killed, the destruction of Jerusalem, those are big deals. If they had already happened, you can bet that Paul, that Luke would have written them down. The only reason they wouldn't have been mentioned is because they hadn't happened yet. Another clue that Acts was completed before Nero's persecution, other than Paul preaching the gospel in Rome without hindrance, is that throughout the book of Acts, you might notice that the Roman government actually gets some pretty good press. The Romans are the people who protected Paul from mob violence, both in Ephesus and in Jerusalem. The only place where the Roman officials mistreated Paul was in Philippi. And you read there that they acknowledged, oops, big mistake. They gave him a backhanded apology and sent him away. So the Romans got some pretty good press, which I don't think they would have gotten if the writer had already known about Nero's persecution, Paul's martyrdom, or the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So that puts the book of Acts probably in the early 60s, which would put the Gospel of Luke sometime before then. So Luke's narrative of the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus was written within a generation of the events he was recording. Many of the people he mentions were likely still alive. Okay, so we've covered who, and we covered when, and now let's cover how. How did Luke write his gospel? Back in verse 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In this verse, Luke is establishing his credentials as a historian. He spent considerable time in Palestine following all things closely to write an orderly account. For whom? Most immediately, he did it for someone he addressed as most excellent Theophilus. Now, because the name Theophilus means friend of God, some people have said, well, there really wasn't anybody named Theophilus. He was just writing that to a church in general or to Christians at large who are friends of God. Well, yes, he did write the gospel for he, the intended recipients are for the Christian community, but there is no reason to believe that Theophilus wasn't an actual person. Theophilus was a very common name back then, and he most likely was a Gentile God-fearer, if not an actual Christian. He was either of noble birth or at least a person of considerable means. If Luke addressed the book to most excellent Theophilus, he was most likely Luke's patron. Well, what does that mean? Well, today, if you want to publish a book, you go to Simon & Schuster's or some other publishing house, and you give them their manuscript, and you hope that they will publish it. Back then, you had a patron, someone who would pay your expenses while you're putting together your book, and, and to thank him, you would dedicate the book to them. And that's what appears to have happened here. But where did Luke get his information? Look again at verses 1 and 2. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word 
have delivered them to us. We already established that Luke was written after Matthew and Mark. He certainly borrowed from Mark and perhaps from some from Matthew. In addition, remember that this book was written in the early 60s, maybe the late 50s. Luke doubtless had access to some of the eyewitnesses he mentioned in verse 2, and he had opportunity to personally interview them. Remember, he was with Paul when he met with the elders in the Jerusalem church, the likes of Peter, John, and James. Some hold that Luke was personally acquainted with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that is where he obtained some of the material that we find in the first two chapters, which detail the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. Okay, so what have we covered so far? We've covered who, we've covered when, we've covered how, now what? What is different about Luke's gospel? Well, we already said that one of Luke's sources is Mark. Many of the narratives you find in the book of Mark you will also find recorded in Luke's gospel, but Luke seems to give a lot more detail. After all, in terms of word count, Mark's is the shortest gospel and Luke's is the longest. It is much more comprehensive. But more importantly, Luke includes a lot of narratives, a lot of material that are unique to his gospel. Here's just a few of them. Luke's gospel contains the birth narrative of John the Baptist, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a much more detailed narrative of the birth of Jesus, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, and Jesus as a young boy at the temple when he was 12 years old. It contains a genealogy of Jesus that differs, differs significantly from the one recorded in Matthew. It includes the raising of the widow's son, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus' calling of Zacchaeus, and Jesus' appearance on the road to Emmaus. You don't find this in any of the other Gospels. Luke is consistent with the other Gospels, but he includes details and has certain emphases which are appropriate to the people he was writing to. For example, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He constructed his Gospel in such a way to convince them that Jesus is their King, the Son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. Luke was writing to a Gentile audience. He therefore emphasized how Jesus would be the means of fulfillment of the promises of, to Abraham that through his seed all nations, not just the Jews, but all nations would be blessed, that God's salvation would be for all people. We see that for the first time in, um, um, where is it, when the words of Simeon, when the baby Jesus is presented in the temple. It says, Lord, now you are setting your servant apart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have been seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Similarly, in Luke chapter 3, we find a genealogy of Jesus that differs from that of Matthew. Both genealogies are obviously accurate, but they trace a different line. Matthew traces one line that goes back to David, Jesus, the son of David, and then back to Abraham, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Luke takes a slightly different route, and he goes 
all the way back to Adam, son of God. Again, to show that he came for all people. Another theme that is common in Luke concerns God's, is God's concern for the poor and the outcasts. It's in Luke that the birth of Jesus is first announced to whom? Not the Herod, as it is in Matthew, but to lowly shepherds. In Luke, we see the theme of God exalting the lowly and bringing down the powerful and haughty, as is underscored in Mary's song in chapter 1, where she says, He has shown strength, the strength with his, with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Similarly, other narratives in you that are unique to Luke's gospel show God's concern for those who were despised and rejected, hated tax collectors like Zacchaeus, and shunned ethnic groups like Samaritans and Gentiles. Another common theme in Luke is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. See this, um, you can see this by comparing a, a verse in Matthew and a parallel verse in Luke. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, in 11, 13, Jesus says something slightly different. May have been on the same occasion, it may have been on a different occasion, okay? He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Of course, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit are even more explicitly prominent in the book of Acts. And by the way, spoiler alert here, Sometime, sometime early next year, we're going to take a hiatus in our study of Luke, and we're going to spend a few weeks on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm looking forward to that very much. Stay tuned. Okay, so while each of these and other different emphases found in the Gospel of Luke each had their purpose, there was one overarching purpose to the Gospel of Luke. And this answers our final question. Why did Luke write his gospel? Well, the answer is stated quite plainly in verse 4. In addressing Theophilus, and by extension everyone who will read his gospel, Luke states that he carefully compiled everything in an orderly fashion. Why? So that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Consider the circumstances of Theophilus or of anyone else in the first century Roman Empire. The official religion back then, if you will, was a pantheon of Roman gods that represented various aspects of nature. Of course, there were also the emperors who liked to be worshipped as deities. I really doubt that anyone, if pressed, really believed any of that stuff, but they went along with the program. Then there was this one peculiar religion in one of Rome's more problematic colonies, known as, at that time as Palestine. 
the people there, the Jews, believed that all of the Roman gods represented in the Pantheon were bogus, particularly the fact that they were represented by statues of stone and cast metal. The Jews rightfully abhorred, even mocked, the absurdity of bowing down to a piece of stone or metal. They claimed that there was only one God who created all things, who was infinite in knowledge and power, love and wisdom. The Romans tolerated this peculiar religion. They had a live and let live arrangement with its rulers, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as long as they didn't get too far out of line. It was a rather cozy arrangement. But one day, these religious leaders asked the Romans for help in taking care of someone that they deemed a threat to them. One Jesus of Nazareth, who was very different from them, he called out the corruption of these leaders. He also preached like no one else. He preached with authority, and he said, a lot of things which strongly implied, if not outright stated, that he was the Son of God, the long-promised Son of David, the Messiah, King of the Jews that they were waiting for. He posed a threat to the cozy relationship, the cozy arrangement between Rome and the religious leaders. So, they had him hung on a cross. That should have put an end to the matter. But then the followers of this Jesus were going around claiming that he was alive. It's pretty bizarre. You would think the Jewish authorities could have put an end to this nonsense by producing the body. But they couldn't. What's more, Jesus' followers, who had previously turned tail and run the night that Jesus was arrested, were now boldly attesting that Jesus was alive. They were drawing large crowds, and many unexplained miracles were happening. The religious leaders would still have none of it, so they doubled down and kept persecuting Jesus' followers, hauling some off to jail, stoning others, and sometimes having them executed by Herod the Tetrarch. One of the religious leaders, a fellow by the name of Saul of Tarsus, was particularly, was particularly zealous and violent, trying to put down this movement until he too claimed to have seen Jesus alive and from that point on his life took a 180. According to verse 4 of Luke's gospel, Theophilus knew all these things. These were things that he had been taught. Whether he was already a Christian or was just considering the claims of Jesus Christ, he needed to be certain. There were lots of competing ideas, competing narratives, competing stories as to what was true and what was not. Luke's purpose was to give certainty to Theophilus and others about the things he knew to be true. While Luke was not there for all the events described in his gospel, he knew people who were. He had spent a long time with Paul on his journeys, where he had a front row seat of many signs and wonders. And as a well-educated writer and master historian, he compiled everything he knew into an orderly account. Everything in Luke's Gospel and in Acts 
that is verifiable, names, places, events, they check out. You can verify them. That is what Theophilus needed. That's what you and I need, too. One of the purposes of our last series was to learn how to navigate through living in a culture that is hostile to our faith. We were taught how to be good neighbors and to seek the good of those around us, to submit to those in authority as long as doing so doesn't go against God's commands. We were taught to be tolerant of others without compromising our own convictions that are informed by God's law. But perhaps the most important thing, the most important aspect of navigating through this culture is that we need to tend to our own souls as well. Amidst all the competing claims in the marketplace of ideas, we need to have certainty about the things that we've been taught. Tell me, when it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, when your faith is mocked, when people look down on you, they think you're a hayseed for believing in the things that you do, this is the gospel, the gospel on which you have staked your life. Do you get discouraged? Do you start to wonder or even doubt? We need to know the certainty of what we've been taught. For me, if doubts or unbelief start to cross my mind, I rush to my New Testament. I look at all four Gospels, and particularly Luke, and then Acts, and then the Epistles. I see how everything is consistent and fits together, not only internally, but with everything we know about the history, geography, people, and places of the first century Roman Empire. I reread the history, and I get so encouraged. I say, oh yeah, this is true. It really did happen. There's no other way it could have happened. Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that changes everything. Amen. So, next week, Scott Crook is of our sister church in Cross Point is going to bring the word to us. But the following week, Adam is going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke with chapter 1, verse 5. And he will spend quite some time going through the remarkable chronicle of the birth life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we study these familiar events, I encourage you to listen with new ears and to see with new eyes. Let your heart be encouraged and overjoyed at the amazing and wonderful news as told by a careful and accurate chronicle who knew what he was talking about and allow it to reaffirm and strengthen the certainty of what you have been taught. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your kindness and goodness. Thank you that for the apostles and the eyewitnesses and the people that you brought together to leave this wonderful written record for us that any fair-minded person could look at and say, oh, 
course it has to be true. There's no other way it makes sense. This actually happened. Thank you that we can be encouraged as we read these Gospels, as we read Acts, as we read the, the letters going back and forth. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have not left yourself without testimony and that we can have confidence. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which also affirms in our hearts that, yes, Jesus Christ, our Lord, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, did many miracles, taught wonderful things about the kingdom of God, was nailed to a cross for our sins, and yet rose again and offers us eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Amen.